Happy holidays. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I am joined to talk about some real, honest-to-God, counts-in-the-standings, regular-season NBA basketball with my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on? Yeah, the NBA is back playing meaningful basketball for the first time in, oh yeah, only two months. Uh, it's Christmas. Uh, things, you know, vaccines are rolling in. Things are looking up, dare I say. Tis the season, as they say. And for us, tis the season to talk a little bit more about the Houston Rockets because they are in dire straits. Their best player continues to try to force the organization's hand or he's just doing what he would otherwise be doing. And in either case, I would say that's worrisome. Ultimately, we're going to talk about the season openers for, well, we were expecting to talk about the season openers for all 30 teams, but one of those games got canceled and that was the Rockets Thunder game uh, on account of the fact that the Rockets could not dress eight healthy players because, well, James Harden, for one thing, was under investigation by the league for uh, attending a seemingly densely populated Christmas party of some kind with no mask on. But don't worry, it wasn't at a strip club, so it should be all good. But he, he's been fined $50,000 by the league and will apparently be able to play in their next game if uh, he produces a couple of negative COVID tests, which to me is a complete joke. I think given that this is now the second time he has been publicly seen flouting the league's health and safety protocols. This should come with a multiple game suspension. And it, th there was another incident, obviously, where a bunch of Rockets, including John Wall and DeMarcus Cousins, had to quarantine because of uh, a haircut gone wrong. And it's surprising to me, honestly, that the game was postponed and wasn't just called an outright forfeit. It should have been a forfeit. And maybe if the Thunder had actually wanted to win games this season, they would have pressed the league for it to be a forfeit and the league would have acquiesced, but they don't. And I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that the game was simply postponed and is now going to be made up at a later date rather than having to put a one in the win column while they're trying to lose as many games as possible. Cash, I don't know. What, what do you make of all this? We've talked about Harden's brazen behavior and our feelings about it. I don't, honestly don't even know how all this ends because I would think that this is probably depressing his trade value. And I don't know if that means that he's more likely or less likely to get traded if he if he's making himself less appealing to other teams around the league with his behavior. I don't know. Did you read that? Was it the Shams report or someone else's report within the last couple of days? Maybe it was Tim McMahon on ESPN. Anyway, I can't remember now, but someone wrote that there it, it shouldn't really affect his trade value because teams that are interested in trading for Harden have essentially treated investigating his like background and and all that and his character the way they normally would with a draft pick. And in this report it said that teams have even hired private investigators. Like that yeah. So it it shows you a a little bit of like the uniqueness of James Harden and who he is off the court. Um and there are plenty of stories people have heard there. But it also shows you you know how much due diligence teams are doing here because of the circumstances of trying to trade for James Harden. So I don't know if this is actually going to depress his trade value. Like, I don't know if a team that was willing to give up, you know, its best prospect or young player or whatever, two days ago to get a top six, top eight at worst NBA superstar 
is now sitting there thinking, well, I don't know if I want to do it. Like, seems like he's a slightly bigger clown than we already thought he was, you know, like it's, but it's not just that. It's not just about being a slightly bigger clown. It's like, is this guy going to literally blow up our season by continuing to flout the rules? And is this guy going to put people's health and people's lives in jeopardy? Like, do we want that as like a, an optical dilemma and B a literal health and safety dilemma. Right. Well, that's why you hire a private investigator. <laughs> I mean, I guess. But no, listen. It, I mean, I've, I've been pretty adamant throughout this whole thing. Even the first time James Harden floated the rules, when I said he was acting like a clown. Um, but that to me, what it seemed like was he was trying to create leverage through chaos because, you know, with multiple years left on his deal, he just doesn't doesn't have the same leverage as most disgruntled superstars. Um, and, and I've been adamant the whole time that is he still worth trading for and worth the trouble because he's James Harden now? Not that I'm saying he's not worth it, but like this goes beyond just, okay, he's being a clown, but here are the reasons why he's doing it. This is like now he's being a straight up idiot. What he's doing is it's reckless. It's dangerous. It's so selfish. Honestly, it's like disgusting. And I think the most frustrating part of it is that he has like gone out of his way to basically say he doesn't care, you know, like whether it was the first time when he put the, uh, was it like the embarrassed emoji or something on, on his Instagram story when everyone was first sharing the, the images of him partying maskless. And then this time, you know, he responds in an Instagram story where like, I, I guess he thought that everyone thought the issue was that just that he was at a strip club and not that it was like, no, cause you're ma- partying maskless again so he puts out that stupid instagram story explanation where he essentially admits the break in the rules but it's like hey it wasn't at a strip club i was at whatever whatever he said it was my friend opening a business and now like supporting her own people and like i just was there to support and everyone's trying to drag me down and the what, what did he say at the end the best always come out on top or something yeah. like that oh, the, yeah, the I, real I, I think he said yeah the realist always come out on top i don't know but it, it's just he's like i said he's gone from like not that it was defensible the first time, but he's gone from, okay, here's at least, he's being a clown, but here's at least why he's doing it. Maybe we can try to make sense of this. They're just like, no, he's a clown. There is no defending this. Whether you, whether you still think he's worth trading for from a basketball perspective or not, I don't know. But there was no defending his reckless actions in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of the pandemic's worst wave, in the country where it is being ravaged like no other, where thousands of people are dying every day. And even me calling him a clown, which is, you know, very on brand for this show, but in and of itself is almost like, you know, a half-hearted joke. Like, that's not strong enough. He's being, he's being an idiot, man. And I, I really don't think we need to sugarcoat that because it is what it is. No, there's no sugarcoating it. I honestly think the league is setting a bad precedent with the slap on the wrist that they're giving him. Like $50,000 is pennies to James Harden. The guy's making $38 million this year. He's not going to sweat over 50 grand. And so j- just to add, it's for every game he misses, even if it's not a suspension, if he has to miss the game because whether it's testing comes back, whatever the case may be, I believe, what does it work out to like $245,000 a game? Yeah, I think two, 280 something. Yeah. But the fact that they're saying he should be able to play against Portland, like, yeah, to me, that is not okay. Even if he returns um, negative tests, I'm not saying it's not okay from a health and safety perspective. I'm saying it's not okay from a precedent perspective like if a guy willingly breaks the rules like this twice in the span of a couple weeks and makes a literal mockery of it with his response 
forget finding him 50 grand. Suspend him. Suspend him like two weeks. I don't care. He's going to appeal it. I don't care. Suspend him. Set the precedent. Like, set an example. Tell us $50,000 and zero games missed going to do to, you know, deter this kind of behavior. Nothing. Nothing. And, and like, the, you know, the league is out here trying to make this season work in a non-bubbled environment. And, like, they've come out and said, like, it's it's going to be a bit bumpy. There are going to be COVID cases. You know, we might have to postpone some games. And, like, okay, that's maybe just a fact of life because the virus continues to run rampant. And until the league gets vaccinated, which Adam Silver has come out and said they're not going to jump the line to do, then you know, all the players essentially are going to be at risk because they're traveling, staying in hotels. But as far as what the league and the players can control, I think that, yeah, they're setting a terrible precedent here. And, you know, you remember Magic Johnson, like, wink, winked at Paul George on Jimmy Kimmel and got fined 500 grand? Yeah. 500 grand. This is this is one-tenth of that. For being reckless in the middle of a global pandemic. Like, what are we doing For the second here? time. For the second time. In a month. Anyway, okay, that's that's all the oxygen I want to waste on this farce. Hold on, can, can I ask you one question, though? Yes. Every trade that you said you would make for diff- various teams for James Harden a week ago, would you still, if you're running those teams, make those same trades? Oh, man. You're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> I uh am. Really building up like, the suspense. <laughs> Please don't edit out this like 40 <laughs> seconds of silence because I really want the our listeners to, to feel the suspense and the stress I just put on you. I mean, yeah. And the thing is, like, I, I don't think that's the wrong answer because I probably would too. But I think it's it's kind of good sometimes to remember that like, you know, I think it would be very easy, like, if a team does trade from whatever, that I'm, I'm sure there'll be some criticisms. And I just think as frustrating as it can be sometimes, like, to remember that whether it's, like, you know, GMs, team presidents, executives, whoever, they might have to do things begrudgingly sometimes because at the end of the day, you know, their job still comes down to just winning basketball games and competing for championships. And so, but I, like, I think this is a good reminder, right? Like, even just the how hard it was for you to admit that on a podcast where really it doesn't mean anything. You know what I mean? Like imagine being yeah. in a position where you actually have to pull the but trigger I, on something yeah. and begrudgingly probably maybe like don't want to do it. But no, I know. And and honestly, like I look, I had to sit and think about that for a while. And I, I don't know, like you, you put me on the spot and I produced an answer on a podcast, but like if I had, you know, a day, a week, like however much time to, to mull it over, I'm sure I would flip-flop a lot. And I don't know whether that's the answer I would come to. Like, you know, character concerns, they can be blown out of proportion when it's something like, you know, a guy being aloof or having a quote-unquote attitude or maybe not necessarily like having the tightest relationship with his teammates. Like all the stuff that gets thrown under the umbrella of character concerns in the league. Like, I think it's really hard to parse sometimes how real that stuff is, how fair that is to the players involved. And I think when it's something like this, it is a little bit more clear cut. You know, you said it, like it's unquestionably selfish, idiotic, and dangerous. So like, I don't, I don't want to like draw any false equivalencies between this and like some other kind of behavior that would lead to a team maybe closing the door but I think it, it, it makes it complicated for sure.
Because like I said before, it's not just, oh man, this guy's kind of difficult. Like, do we really want like a difficult personality in our locker room? It's literally like, do we want to bring in somebody who like might endanger the people around him? And I think that's a, a really difficult question to answer. Um, all right. So can we move on from there? Let's do it. All right. So we are going to attempt a somewhat ambitious project here where uh, between Cash and I, we, we split up viewing duties for each of the opening games that was played over the last couple of days. And between the two of us, we're going to try and hit on all of them and just give a couple of observations, what we saw and what we're looking for, for all of those teams moving forward. So I'll kick it to you to start us off, Cash. We can maybe go in chronological order, and you can start us off with Nets Warriors. Yeah, so I've got <clears throat> observations for both teams. I wrote about them that night. I know you wrote about the All-LA game. So first of all, from the Nets' perspective, for as much as we can take away from one game, Kevin Durant looks like Kevin Durant for the most part. And to me, what that means is the Nets are the team to beat in the East. And that's not something I'm, you know, I'm not making that, prediction or anything literally based on one game I it's something I said coming into the year that you know I could see the Nets losing the first round but that if Kevin Durant is anything near peak Durant or looks like he could be that guy again early in the season that's my pick to win the East because I don't think anyone in the conference even the Bucks with the two-time reigning MVP can match that top end talent like I hope people haven't forgotten how good Kevin Durant was you know like no one's come closer to taking LeBron's throne in the last decade than Kevin Durant has. And what I think was so encouraging about that game, you know, he ended up like seven of 16. So it's not like he blew the doors off, but what I think was so encouraging about that game is like how effortless it looked for him again. Um, He was getting to his spots at will. Obviously we know he can rise up and get his jumper off over everybody, but he seems really comfortable like testing his leg too. Like he was, he had some pretty aggressive drives, took contact, fell back like a few times and there just didn't seem to be any hesitation. And I think for me, that's the thing that stood out, like the lack of hesitation, the comfort uh, in testing his body and uh, and the ease and lack of effort really needed for him to, I think, end up with 22 points in 24 minutes or whatever it was. And then, you know, obviously Kyrie did his thing uh, very similar to last year's season opener, not that he dropped 50 points, but just he looked, you know, last year, if, if you remember in that game against Minnesota, that Brooklyn loss, probably the best game of Kyrie's season came in that first game. So that was similar on his part. And just watching the Nets and seeing the depth in real time and seeing the just abundance of offensive talent and shot creation that they have and like usually when you have two stars as good as Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving most teams most coaches not all but most would opt to stagger their minutes right because you want to make sure at least one of them's on the court all game the Nets are like so deep and offensively gifted that they don't really have to do that and you saw it like the three minutes to go in the first quarter of that game Nash had both Durant and Irving sitting on the bench and the Nets still had a lineup out there Karis Levert uh, Spencer Dinwiddie, Jared Allen was out there. Landry Shamit was out, like, in, in terms of bench lineups, like that's pretty damn good, and that's more than enough during the regular season to survive without either of Durant or Irving on the floor. Uh, with like six minutes to go or seven minutes to go, and the Nets up thirty-eight, their garbage time lineup was at the time it was Karis Levert, uh, Timothy Lawabo Cabarro, uh, Rodian Karuks. Who else am I missing here? The point is there was uh, like there was talent on the floor. You know what I mean? This was not your typical garbage time lineup. And then they took Lavert out and put Tyler Johnson in. So it's just like watching it in real time and just seeing how deep 
that team is. And yeah, there are definitely defensive questions to be asked, no doubt. You know, it's one game. We'll see how Nash handles the volatility of that locker room as things come up throughout the season. There, there's plenty to talk about there. But just, I, I think teams are going to struggle to keep up, you know, all year with the fact that Nash can pretty much play lineups every minute of every game, barring catastrophe, where the Nets have the talent to create points. And, uh, and yeah, I just think that'll be tough to keep up with over 48 minutes, over 72 games. And then obviously, you know, in playoff series, if Kevin Durant is what he looks like. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing Kevin Durant play against not Eric Paschal and, and see how much he still looks like Kevin Durant. Then I do think there were a lot of encouraging signs. I would just say, you know, most of his points obviously were coming on jump shots and I don't think that's some great surprise, but I did kind of feel like, you know, going to the rim, there were a couple like contested layups that he attempted where he didn't go up all that strong and he did get to the free throw line a bunch. So uh, I I would agree that mostly the the signs were very encouraging. And then the Warriors note that I wanted to take from that game, just that like, uh, look, we're going to have to see what it looks like when Draymond Green's there. I've, you know, I've talked all off season about how I still believe in the upside of this roster, but man, you know, I talked about watching the Nets in real time and like coming to a couple of early conclusions, like, Watching that Warriors team in real time, in like a meaningful game without Draymond too. And I wrote about this that night. Like, I don't know if they have the talent and or the IQ to create enough space for Steph Curry to operate at his best and to take advantage of the space that he creates for them. And... You saw it. It was very reminiscent of the few games he played last year. Or, you know, you can go back to those finals games in the in the minutes KD and Clay were both out, where it's just like Steph has to work so hard to create anything for himself or to create space for teammates. And, and they're just not good enough to do anything with it. Like, I, who is their second best on-ball creator? Wiggins? Oubre? Oubre? <laughs> Uh, Brad Wanamaker? I mean, I mean, I think it's Draymond when Draymond's healthy. Okay, sorry. I don't mean on-ball creators. I mean, like, an, an ability to create for themselves on the ball. Like, do you think it's Draymond? I think Draymond's their second, or maybe their best playmaker, but I'm saying in terms of, other than Steph, their second best on-ball creator who can create for themselves. Probably Wiseman. That's a problem, right? And then it's like... <laughs> Wiseman looked pretty good. I, that's like, if, if you're looking for silver linings from that he game, did. I thought he looked he pretty good. And then it's like, who's their... Who's their second best shooter? Wanamaker? Damian Lee? Yeah, Bazemore maybe. I don't know. Yeah, like it, it just however you slice it, this team needs everything to go right and and also for Draymond to be healthy and on the court. It's just, again, like I, I still believe in their upside. It's one game, but that one game was pretty rough to watch. And uh, Steve Kerr has his work cut out for him because it, it's one of those rosters where like, you look at it on paper and you think, okay, like, you know, like not that I'm the biggest Wiggins fan and, you know, Ubre is like a solid three and you, got, you start thinking, okay, like Curry, Wiggins, Ubre, Draymond, Wiseman, like there's, a, there's talent there around Steph and Draymond, like this, it can be something. And then you watch it again, albeit without Draymond. It's like, oof, I don't know if there actually is that much talent there. No, I mean, it looked very similar to the games they played at the beginning of last year. It's like you, you got to make a, an opposing team pay for like sending two or three bodies of Steph. And what are they doing with those advantages that he creates? Exactly. And, and I do think like Draymond will help a lot because he's a good release valve, like a guy who can play the four on three really effectively. But there is a definite dearth of shooting and playmaking that I think is going to make it really difficult. And 
I, you know, I basically expected their offense to struggle this year, but I thought that their defense might actually be above average and help them stay afloat. Uh, I didn't really believe in their upside the way that you did, as you know, but uh, their defense also looked really, I mean, again, no Draymond, but their defense looked quite bad. Um, All right. Lakers, Clippers, Clippers take the opener as they did last year. Paul George was absolutely incredible, completely took over the game in the second half, silencing the doubters. And now surely none of his critics will ever say a bad word about him again. It seemed to me like the Lakers were taking it somewhat easy and will probably continue to do so for the early part of this season. Uh, LeBron basically sat for the whole fourth quarter, even though the game was within reach. Uh, And I wouldn't say he was exactly going full throttle when he was out there either. Um, But the Clippers played really well. I think, you know, the new guys, they got added an interesting dynamic. Uh, We saw the value of the spacing that Ibaka can provide from the five. And I think especially against the Lakers big lineups where they're just going to make it really tough to score on the interior. Granted, Marcus all was really bad in his Lakers debut. He committed five fouls in 12 minutes and didn't attempt a shot had no points a rebound and assist it was not a great game for him but I do think the answer to those lineups is to put as much shooting on the floor as possible and look Ibaka is not going to solve the Clippers AD problem they they still have an issue when it comes to guarding him they essentially resorted to using wings to guard him and then just throwing double teams which was actually quite effective I thought AD looked pretty sharp passing out of those double teams But I also think like there were a lot of lineups the Lakers were playing where LeBron was on the bench. And even if AD was able to pass out of the double teams, the Lakers didn't really have enough talent on the floor to make the Clippers pay. But Ibaka didn't look all that good guarding AD. They also used him to switch a whole bunch. Like they switched him on to LeBron an awful lot. And I just don't think that's the right way to use Serge. And anyway, so I think like a good illustration of his utility and lack of utility uh, was the fact that in 10 minutes where he and Gasol were both on the floor, the Clippers were plus 11. And in 10 minutes where Ibaka was on the floor and one of AD or Harrell was playing center, they were a minus 19. And in general, I thought they looked a lot better with Zubac out there. And I, I think Zubac should be starting. Uh, I wonder if that's what we'll see by the end of the season. But that, that was sort of my feel for that game. I think it would be pretty ironic if after all of the complaints about like Doc Rivers being too player friendly and always bending to the will of Kawhi and to a lesser extent PG, I think it would be pretty funny if all year everyone sees Zubac should should play more than Ibaka and start and and we just run into the same issues where like Lou bending to the will of probably Kawhi and and the vets goes with Ibaka again. You know what I mean? Like. I think it would be very ironic, and I don't think it's that far-fetched that that's actually just what's going to happen all year. Yeah, and I mean, look, Ibaka is still a much better defender in my mind than Harrell is, but I could definitely see a scenario where like, they're in a playoff series with Denver and Lou still isn't hard-matching Zubac and Jokic's minutes, which I think is what should happen. So yeah, we'll, we'll have to keep an eye on that. Um, I also thought, like surprisingly, Nick Batum looked kind of good, and... He just brings like no scoring pop whatsoever. But as a connector from the top of the floor, I actually thought he worked really well. They put him in that starting lineup because Morris was out. But that that playmaking, like he had six assists in the game and a lot of them were just very basic 
swing passes or entry passes, but those passes were being delivered on target. And just having a facilitator like that, who is getting PG and Kawhi the ball in the right spots, getting those guys the ball on the move rather than forcing those guys to initiate every possession, I thought was really helpful. So I think he actually has a place with that team. He has looked incredibly washed the last couple of years. And compared to what he used to be, he is. Because again, he just really brings nothing to the table as a scorer. But I think his passing could actually be pretty helpful for this team that is otherwise somewhat light on facilitating. All right, I'm going to move us over to uh, a bit of a surprising result from from Wednesday's opening night, which was uh, the Pelicans beating the Raptors by 14. The Raptors were up like 11 midway through the third quarter. Pels came back. And my one real, I know people probably want to hear about Zion, but I think the most interesting takeaway for me, and it was something I, I tweeted like four minutes into that game, is I don't think the Pelicans can continue to start and, and play many minutes with Lonzo, Bledsoe, Adams, all on the floor at the same time around Zion and Ingram. Like the the lack of spacing was evident from the jump in that game. And I just think it's like so obvious that they need to either start or whether it's finished games, just play more minutes with Redick on the court for one of those guards. I'd say probably for Bledsoe because Lonzo's actually become over the last half season and even last night, like, a decent shooter, although Bledsoe shot well in, in opening game anyway. But the point is, I think Redick needs to be on the floor for one of those guys. They got the win on opening night. That's fine. But they got the win on opening night because the floor opened up a lot in the second half because they played Redick a lot. And it's not even just that he went off, but with Redick out there in the extra spacing, Brandon Ingram all of a sudden had a lot more uh, space to operate. And he had a monster second half just in general. This is a team that should compete at worst for a playing spot. But I think like if you're talking total ceiling, if everything breaks right, I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility that they could challenge for a top six spot. I mean, they need health and a lot of things to break right, but they also need to make sure they're maximizing the talent and the roster at their disposal. And one of the ways I think they need to do that is make sure JJ Redick is again, either starting or just playing a lot of minutes with, with Zion and Ingram, because it's honestly not fair to Zion Williamson and Brandon Ingram to have them log many minutes with all three of Lonzo, Bledsoe, and Adams out there. So I, I was going to say, because uh, I didn't watch this game, but that starting lineup that we were so worried about from a spacing perspective shot 11 for 22 from three in the game. So on the flip side of that, like Zion didn't have a great game. And I'm assuming that had something to do with OG Ananobi's defense on him, but... Look, you can have a lineup that actually shoots the ball well without actually providing that spacing. And I think it's going to take a long time, if ever, for defenses to actually start respecting Lonzo and Bledsoe to the extent that they can actually be floor spacers. So watching that game, was that the case? Was it just like they shot 11 for 22 from three because the Raptors were leaving them wide open every time? And, no. and as a consequence, like Zion wasn't really able to do anything inside the arc. Like, is that sort of how it played out? O- OG did a great job on Zion, as we'd expect. But it, like, when you say that lineup, like they combined to shoot 11 of 22 from three, the five man unit, it's not like they went 11 of 22 in the minutes those five guys played together. You know what I mean? Right. So a lot of that was like, for example, in the second half, for, first of all, the first half, they couldn't hit a shot if their life depended on it. In the second half, when they got hot, most of it was done with Redick on the floor. Uh, there was a period when Bledsoe and Lonzo both kind of got hot in the third quarter, but it wasn't with both guys on the court. 
you know, or like Brandon Ingram really started taking over, I'd say late third quarter, early fourth quarter. Again, it was with Redick on the court and only one of – so you know what I mean? Like those five guys in the starting lineup might have combined for 11 of 22, but it wasn't like they shot 50% from deep as a unit, if you get if you get what I'm saying. It like opened up for them as they mixed and matched the lineups and mostly when Redick was out there. And Lonzo, I didn't see as much of the Raptors disrespecting the shot, but Bledsoe, they definitely were daring him to shoot. Like there were a couple times when Lowry completely abandoned him on the perimeter, was not concerned about him whatsoever, and Bledsoe made them pay. Um, and and you just kind of got to live with that. But yeah, I'd say definitely Lonzo's form looked pretty good too. But I'd say if there if there was one guy that the the Raptors were disrespecting their jumper more than the other, it was definitely Bledsoe. Is this going to be the season that turns me into a Brandon Ingram believer at long last? Man, listen, I, I I, mean, I went into last season as a non-believer. I became a believer pretty early in last season just because of, you know, what I was saying all of last season that I thought like the process stuff was pretty good and that like, like he has the talent to be a tough shot taker and maker. Like I didn't think what he was doing was this unsustainable thing where he's just hitting circus shots and, and it's not going to sustain itself over the long haul. And then again, if you, you know, go back and watch footage from the season opener it was more of that but just at like a higher level and he essentially put that game away for them um, against a really tough defense so I think it will be I think you'll be a believer pretty soon to be honest because if he just keeps doing what he's doing and what he did last year I I don't see how anyone of sound basketball mind can continue to be a non-believer uh well yeah the 11 assists are what really jumped out at me and his playmaking is something I've thought to be like pretty middling uh, to this point in his career, but if he can take a playmaking leap, then I think that would go a long way toward convincing me that he was the real deal. I'm going to move us on to the Pacers and Knicks. I- I'm going to start with the Knicks because RJ Barrett looked very good in this game. 26 points, shot the ball well, three of three from downtown, and it's going to be a while before we can say whether that's real or not, but he did shoot the ball pretty well in the preseason too, so that's very encouraging. And I think he's a good downhill player. Like he gets to the rim and finishes pretty well. He's quite strong. And even though he's not like a super fast or explosive athlete, I think he does a really good job of using his body to shield the ball. And that allows him to finish through the trees. And I think, you know, he hit a bunch of pretty well contested layups in this game. I continue to think like the the setup in New York is just not beneficial to him. Because ideally, he would be this kind of slashing wing who's being used as like a secondary creator, and they have a legitimate point guard who's running the offense, and there's more spacing there for him to be able to get downhill. But, you know, just given the context that he's been placed in, I think he so far has acquitted himself reasonably well, and uh, and this was a really encouraging game from him. I also thought Toppin looked pretty good at the offensive end. He just just a very like coordinated and polished offensive player. I thought his passing really popped to me. He made a couple really nice outlet passes in transition. E- even though like him and Carl Anthony Towns both, they both have like very strange posture and yet they're both like incredibly dynamic athletes. It's really weird. And from the Pacers side of things, uh, DeMontis Sabonis was incredible. He's up there among the best guys in the league at just completely schooling like young, over-eager big men. You might remember a couple years ago, a game in which the Raptors were shorthanded and had to play Chris Boucher against him. And it got very, very ugly very quickly. Uh, And he did that to Mitchell Robinson, who I think is a good defensive player with a really high defensive ceiling, but just like still can't stay on his feet. 
uh, and Sabonis took advantage of that. He looks great. Oladipo looked pretty good, and the two-man game between those two guys still, to me, looks very solid. TJ Warren played, uh, but he did not look right at all, and I'm assuming that has something to do, whether it's rust or just the fact that that plantar fasciitis is still bothering him, uh, he looked all kinds of off. But all told, man, I think... Look, the Pacers' shot diet looks completely different under Nate Bjorkman. Like, they've really cut out the mid-range jumpers, and they're playing with, like, a little bit more pace, a little bit more second-side movement in their offense. I think it's going to look like a bit of a different team under him this year, and I'm excited to see whether that can hold up against some actual good teams. Yeah, I mean, they're going to need it, right, in that in that fight with the Wizards and the Hawks. <laughs> you want to you take us to the Hawks? I do. Um, so... The, the we didn't really get our our first look at the new look Hawks completely because no Dunn, no Rondo, no Capella in this game, and they actually brought Bogdanovich off the bench. That's what I wanted them to do. Yeah, they started uh, they started Trey and Reddish and Hunter, and they started Gallo and Collins together. And the final numbers, their defense actually comes out looking not bad, but I think the first half is what we all kind of envisioned for this team and honestly what I hope for this team because it was entertaining as hell. So they blow the doors off the Bulls. Like the Bulls were never in this game, but the first half of this game to me is exactly what we want from the Hawks this season. So they give up 59 points in the half, which isn't insanely bad, but you know, obviously not great. They give up 59 points in the first half and still go into the half up by 24 because they scored 83 points on 66 50 83 shooting in 24 minutes. Trey Young finished with 37 points on only 21 individual possessions from like the opening minute. It was a treat to watch. The Hawks, I uh, sorry, the Bulls obviously, you know, I know last year they had that surprising top 10 defense. I don't think they're going to be anything close to a defensive juggernaut this season. So, you know, obviously not the biggest test for the Hawks, but still given, you know, that they were missing three rotation guys. The fact that they were able to cruise to victory like this, you know, for a team that victories of any sort have been hard to come by the last couple of years, that has to be a very encouraging first step for this team. And uh, yeah, I'm still fascinated to see what it's going to look like once you get Rondo, not so much, but once you get Dunn and Capella in there. Have we been underrating Jim Boylan? Is that what's happening here? Because (laughs) there was this whole, this whole, line of thought that look okay billy donovan's coming in he's scrapping jim boylan's like ridiculously aggressive defensive scheme that led to the bulls like fouling everybody and giving up a ton of shots at the rim and corner threes he's gonna dial it back they're gonna play a little bit more conservative it's gonna make more sense with the personnel that they have on the roster and yeah i mean i I obviously whatever (laughs) whatever billy donovan did wasn't entirely working uh we don't want to take too much away from one game but Man, uh, not a great start for the Bulls, who, you know, I'm not a believer in this team, but I didn't think they would get shellacked to that extent by the Hawks, another team that I'm not really fully on board with. So, yeah. Uh, before you get to your next game, I did want to mention, because you you uh, you brought up whether we underrated Jim Boylan, and I almost threw up in my mouth a little bit, but also... <laughs> Not only not only does it look like that after one Bulls game of this season, but also I'm trying to remember, I should search Twitter here while while we're doing this, but someone, like a team brought in Boylan. I was just reading about this yesterday as like a defensive consultant. 
Oh, yeah, the Blazers. Terry Stotts brought in Jim Boylan to consult with his staff for three weeks about improving the team's defense. So, I mean... The Blazers' defense has also looked absolutely atrocious so it far. Has, but so I, just think it's, I just think it's funny that... I mean, I, I certainly do not believe in Jim Boylan. I thought he was legitimately one of the worst NBA coaches I've seen in recent years, maybe in my life. But... I mean, I don't know. He had a top 10 defense with a not great team. And now Terry Stodds brought him in for three weeks to consult. So I don't know. Maybe I was a little too harsh with my boiling criticism. Yeah. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll wait and see on the Bulls, I guess, and what Billy Donovan can figure out as the season goes along. I do think losing Chris Dunn was a, a big blow to that defense. And they probably overachieved on that end of the floor as it was last season. So uh, you know, I'm not a believer in their offense. And if they can't, you know, even defend at something close to a league average level, then they might be one of the worst teams in the league. Because again, offensively, they just have such a lack of playmaking that uh, I don't think they're going to be able to even scratch the top 20 at that end of the floor this year. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Let's talk Wizards Sixers. Uh, the Wizards were leading for most of this game. They were up by double digits going into the fourth quarter. And... Then Joel Embiid basically just took over the game, which is something I thought he should have been doing from the outset, but he wasn't all that aggressive early on. In fairness, the Wizards were sending uh, a lot of double teams his way. And like even when they weren't hard doubling him, they were shading extra, extra bodies in his direction. But um, he was just completely dominant in the fourth quarter. Thomas Bryant had no answers. And in general, Thomas Bryant is like one of the worst defensive big men that I've ever watched. There was one possession in which Embiid pumped him off his feet like three times in a row. And it was just like he was toying with him, right? Like he didn't even put the ball on the floor in the end. He just kept pump faking. Bryant kept jumping and eventually Embiid just stuck a mid-range jumper. Um, And like in drop coverage, he just makes no impact around the rim. It's going to be really tough for the Wizards to craft a functional defense with him in the middle. And don't get me wrong, Bryant's like a really good offensive player. He had a couple runouts. Like I think him and Westbrook playing in transition is going to be really effective. This year, I think Westbrook hit him three times in transition for dunks. Uh, and he's an effective role man who's shown the ability to space the floor. Like, he fits there offensively very well. But really poor defensive big man. Uh, I thought Beal looked great moving off the ball. They ran some really nice sets for him, like some Iverson cuts, him flashing toward the middle of the floor, secondary pick and rolls. I think that offense can be excellent. Westbrook was awesome in transition and pretty blah in the half court, despite that one highlight of him dropping Ben Simmons. Uh, and the fact that he did, he, he must have hit like four or five mid-range jumpers, but all told, he just, he's just not really an effective half court player at this point in his career. He had um, a terrible defensive game too, from like the like eight minutes I watched. Yeah, he's, I mean, we, we know what Russ is at this yeah. point in time, right? Um, when him and Beal were out there together, the offense looked quite good. And when Russ kind of had to run the offense without Beal there, it didn't look all that pretty in the half court. From the Sixers' perspective, this wasn't a great showing for them. Like the fact that the Wizards' defense actually looked competent for large stretches of this game was a bit damning to me. 
I thought one thing I was worried about uh, that did sort of bear out in this game was when they're playing transitional lineups and, and Simmons is out there with Dwight Howard, their offense gets very gummed up. Like that's kind of an underrated thing about having Horford there as poor a fit as he was with the starters and as poorly as lineups with him and Embiid and Simmons played together. When Embiid hit the bench, Horford made a lot of sense as like the bench big man playing next to Simmons. And defensively, honestly, Dwight looked quite good in this game, but offensively the fit between him and Simmons, if they're going to be playing those two guys in transitional lineups is going to be really challenging. But the Sixers also went to like a full bench unit with Shake Milton, Korkmaz, Tyrese Maxey, Mike Scott, and Dwight that absolutely destroyed the Wizards. And I thought Maxey looked really good, like just a very fluid athlete, looked good with the ball in his hands, got to the rim pretty much at will and threw some really nice passes. So great first game for him. And I think at the end of the game, like we saw a lot of what Seth Curry is going to open up for their offense it's pretty similar to what Redick did for them, right? Like he's not as good an off ball mover as Redick was, but like just like his gravity, uh, you know, there was a play with like an Embiid show and go a fake dribble handoff to Curry, where he took it to the rack for the the go ahead basket in the final minute of the game. And then what turned out to be kind of like the dagger was uh, Seth coming off like a double screen, uh, magnetizing multiple defenders and essentially leaving Ben Simmons wide open in the dunker spot for a basket that like essentially put the game away. So I think that's going to be really helpful for them. And last thing is that Shake Milton honestly looked pretty damn good as an initiator in this game. And he can like, if he can do that consistently, then that's just going to be a huge boon to their offense because that has been like the big bugaboo. And the thing that I've been most worried about is like, where is the half court initiating coming from? And I got to say, man, Milton looked quite comfortable in that role. I'm glad you brought up the uh, the game ceiling play there where Simmons was left alone in the dunker spot because like it was it, obviously if you watch that play there were things you know Philly was doing with movement and stuff that that got him that but I also think it was it was an also a very obviously glaring defensive breakdown on the Wizards part and if you were watching the Sixers broadcast of that game they reacted to Ben Simmons getting open and dunking it with like a gasp at Doc Rivers' out-of-timeout, the drying-up ability. And I don't know if maybe that just says something about how unimpressed they were for years by Brett Brown. I don't know. But, like, you would have thought that Philly's home broadcast had never seen a Sixers coach draw up a play to get a guy open. And, like, go back and watch that on League Pass or something if you have it. Like, find the highlight. It is hilarious to listen to them react and, and talk about the brilliance of, you know, Doc, who is an ATO master. I'm not taking that away from him. I just thought it was funny that, like, on a play that was very obviously partially made possible by just a glaring defensive breakdown, they made it seem like Doc Rivers had just drawn on this incredible play. And I was, like, actually laughing out loud. Because, like, man, I hope Brett Brown's not watching this. Like, they, they are very easily impressed. Listen, man, you can't credit the butterfly without also giving credit to the caterpillar. Shout out, shout or out, whatever the hell that line is, which I never want to ever do. Um, but uh, okay, I do. Before we move on to the next game, I do have a, a couple of questions for you because I, like I said, I watched like eight minutes of this game. But the first question I have for you is how in God's name was Danny Green a minus 27 in 18 minutes, which means the Sixers were 
a plus 33 in 30 minutes without him. Uh, if you can, in like 30 seconds or less, explain to me how bad Danny Green, it was just one of those nights or like. Yeah, I don't really have a good explanation for it, aside from the fact that, quite honestly, like when it was starters versus starters, the Wizards fared quite well. And when the teams went to their benches, it was the Sixers that were absolutely destroying them. And I don't necessarily think that's a trend that's going to carry over, but I do think it's like a good sign for the Sixers because their bench has been quite poor throughout the Simmons and Bede era. And I think having you know, some legitimate scoring punch off of the bench while also having, you know, defensive stabilizers like Dwight. I mean, that's, look, like they, they have really had problems finding a reliable eighth guy in the playoffs. Like these have been issues for them for a long time. And I think there are a few guys off of the bench who you could see maybe being part of their playoff rotation that is actually going to help them. And I would say, you know, Shake Milton certainly looks like a guy who's going to be capable of that. And it's possible that Tyrese Maxey will be as well. And and as as to like the, the Sixers starters and how much they kind of struggled in this game, I, I just like what is Tobias Harris as a player, man? Like he is such a an enigma to me and like so frustrating because I, I do feel like the ability is there, but like he's just not a very good decision maker. And there's, there's and that, something that's killed him in the playoffs. Uh, yeah. On multiple occasions, that that exact thing, the like decision making, the um, lack of decisiveness with the ball in his hands sometimes. Yeah, I asked. Yeah, the Danny Green thing. I asked you. I've I have uh, a friend, Iggy, who is convinced and has been convinced uh, that Danny Green just sucks. Like the last couple of years, he just seems to always tune in on nights Danny Green's having an awful night and he thinks he sucks. And I always argue with him and like try to explain to him why Danny Green is a valuable NBA player and like what about him uh, makes him valuable. And so. Uh, yeah, I just I saw the box score and the, and the plus minus and thought I hope Iggy doesn't see this because he's definitely going to send it to me and th- say that I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, and then the other question I had for you is uh, is Matisse Thybul just not in? Is Thybul not in their rotation to start the year? Like, I, it seems uh, like he he didn't play. Like, yeah, yeah. I was, I was looking to see like if he was hurt or something. Um, is it just uh, with no? He Max checked in for now, like he, he checked in for like the last thirty seconds of the game. I don't entirely know why he got marginalized i would assume that it has something to do with the fact that they just feel like they need uh the additional playmaking that guys like maxi and milton can give them yeah. and thibel you know while being obviously a great defender and a guy who's shown some ability to hit standstill threes obviously just doesn't give them any kind of ball handling or playmaking ability so i, I mean look there are going to be games i think where they need to dust them off especially against teams you know with scoring wings that they can throw him at but i guess they felt like this wasn't the matchup for him and if you're a matisse Dibel fan then I, I i would maybe be a little bit concerned about the fact that he got leapfrogged by a rookie in the rotation yeah i just th- i always think it's interesting right when like how quickly guys roles change on a team um and maybe it has to do with a new coach and management whatever the case may be but just in general like this is a guy who as a rookie a year ago sixers fans and and us and NBA fans in general were pretty excited about. Not that they thought he was going to be a star or anything, but here and there, he his shot would fall, and you think, oh, this guy could be like a really good three and D standout for years to come. At very worst, this like elite defender and like a part of the Sixers' future here and their foundation as they go forward. And it's like a year later, we're talking about how just the way the roster is broken down this year, like he he might not even be in their rotation at all and might be limited to garbage time as a sophomore. So it's it's always kind of crazy and fascinating to me how quickly guys roles can change when basically whether or not stars uh okay i'll take us to wolves pistons now 
<laughs> uh, which I mean, it's depressing to even say that because yeah, I watched yeah. that game. But, um, so I mean, Cat I thought looked good, and I mean, Cat in general like pretty depressing stuff when you hear him say after the game that like you know the guy he was yeah. before him is basically his exact words were that guy's dead, like that guy's gone, he's never coming back, and so I mean, it like there was like a, just a lot of emotions. Um, around that game, especially after the game. But um, in terms of the, games, the game itself, I thought Towns looked great. I mean, he brought them home down the stretch. I think, I mean, it wasn't concerning for me because I think the Wolves are going to be really bad. But for anyone or for Wolves fans who maybe I think have some sort of thoughts of them competing for something of substance in the West, I don't think it was a great sign that they needed Cat to bring them home down the stretch against a team we both agree suck, a team that you think, I believe, is going to finish with the worst record or at least worst record in the East. Um, worst the one record is, in the NBA is what I said. There actually. you go, yeah. And, 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 and the Wolves desperately needed Towns to bail them out down the stretch. It was not a good look. Uh, the one interesting wrinkle, I'd say, from that game from Minnesota's perspective is that they they brought D'Lo off the bench. D'Angelo Russell came off the bench. He still played more minutes than Rubio or Beasley. And he closed the game with Malik Beasley over Rubio, but they started Rubio and Beasley. I thought that was an interesting wrinkle, obviously given you know, just the money that they're giving to D'Angelo Russell and the way the franchise has tried to push him in towns as this like big two that we know obviously does not exist. Um, and then from the Pistons perspective, yeah, I just think all of the things we kind of talked about in their frustrating and weird, not even frustrating, just confusing off season kind of came to light in their opener. Like you had Jeremy Grant, trying to be a player he is not capable of being and by the end of it i was like man was josh jackson their best player tonight and i think he was and uh, i think there's going to be a lot of those nights for the pistons not where necessarily josh jackson's their best player but you just like you watch the game you look at the box score you like kind of like watch it a second time if you're into um masochism but it, and it's just like wait who was their best player and like who's this guy or like that guy was their best player on an NBA team in a regular season? And like, there's going to be a lot of those nights for the Pistons. They're bad. They stink. So, yeah, you're feeling good about my my pick to have them finish with the worst record in the league? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I still think the Knicks are pretty bad. I think. I mean, we'll, we can talk about the Hornets at some point when I get to that game, another depressing game I watched. But, uh, yeah, the Pistons definitely have a shot. I mean, I mentioned their lack of shooting. They went eight for 35 from three in this game. They also only got eight free throw attempts, which just seems like it would be pretty difficult to do. But yeah, the the lack of offensive punch is really worrying to me. And the fact that they only put up 101 points on a defense that I consider to be one of the worst in the league is definitely concerning. Quickly, any thoughts on Anthony Edwards' debut? Like, I'd I'd say he kind of was what I expected. There were moments where... Like, all right, there's that's that's a pretty impressive offensive package he's got. I think he'll be able to contribute immediately, like from an offensive perspective. He didn't have like the most efficient night, but he had a couple moments where you're like, okay, he's got that in the bag, and it's kind of what we expect. Like he's offensively, I really do think he's NBA ready. Like the guy can score. It's just um like so many guys on this Timberwolves team who are uber talented on one end, he's just got no clue on the defensive end. And uh yeah, I, I just don't see I don't see how he'll be able to be like a positive value player as a rookie just because he's that bad defensively. And I, again, it's just the Timberwolves in general. I don't see how they're going to compete for anything of substance when they are as bad as they are on one end of the court. Let's move over to Bucks Celtics. A wild finish to this game. Uh, and we can just start there. Uh, the, the last possession for the Celtics, uh, Giannis switches on to Jason Tatum. 
forces him into a very difficult, well-contested step back three that is way off the mark, but banks in. And that gives the Celtics a two-point lead. Then the Bucks drop an inbounds play for Giannis to get a lob. He gets fouled, uh, ticky-tack foul, questionable foul from Tristan Thompson, but that sends him to the free throw line where he has a chance to put these reworked free throw shooting mechanics to the test in a high pressure situation, makes the first one, misses the second one quite badly. And just a huge bummer because he was actually a six for seven from the line up until that point. But I don't know. I, I didn't really actually see any like hot takes coming out of no, that. Mostly jokes. I said about Giannis, but I, I mean, I did think Giannis for the most part was really good in that game, especially like, the Celtics had a 17-point lead going into the fourth quarter, and the Bucks came all the way back. And Giannis was doing a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to that comeback. And a lot of it was just, like, the Celtics don't have great options for guys to guard him. I think the person who probably did the best job was Marcus Smart. And so much of that was just him. Like, I think he drew three charges on Giannis. He was just sitting on his Euro step, sitting on his spin move. And the way that Giannis adjusted, essentially, was just getting deep post position on defenders who are way smaller than him, backing them down and getting to like these like eight to 12 foot turnaround jumpers that he was able to knock down. And I would love to see more of that from him because I think I'm not going to say like the league has him figured out. Like he still plays with so much force and does handle the ball reasonably well for somebody his size. Like I don't think him kind of initiating from the top of the floor is like a total lost cause. But I think it's become easier for defenders to slow him down when they can gap him and kind of give him that space to drive the ball from the top rather than when he's just able to kind of seal them and get deep position. And so I think a counter to, you know, a defender like Marcus Smart, who's just sitting there waiting for him, ready to draw a charge or stone him on like one of his pet moves to just essentially back him down and get close enough to the basket where he's confident in his turnaround jumper. And like, if he can start to do that consistently, then I think that is going to make him that much more difficult to stop as an offensive player. I think for Boston in general, like I know they blew a pretty big lead and they needed a pretty miraculous shot to go in off glass in the end. But for them, I think any win against the other teams in the East top six that they can bank while Kemba's out is encouraging. Like I've talked about, how vulnerable I think they are with Kemba out. You know, it helped that Jeff Teague looked like he was incredible. 2014 Jeff Teague in this game, but we may have to walk back our take that Wanamaker is better than him. Yeah. <laughs> he looked really good. Yeah, that might have been too spicy. Um, but yeah, like, you know, they obviously don't need Teague to be that good every night, but if they can get a, three quarters of that from him on any given night and uh, Tatum is what he is. And Jalen Brown was phenomenal. Jalen Brown was probably, the, eh, maybe Giannis was, but Jalen Brown was in the conversation for the best player on the floor in that game until the Giannis takeover. And, uh, and yeah, like I said, just to be able to win a game against Milwaukee or any of the East's fellow top six teams during the time without Kemba, which, you know, might actually be a pretty long time is uh, those are wins. They just got to hold on to for dear life. Yeah. They did start Tyson Thompson together, which is something we speculated about preseason uh, and brought Teague off the bench. I thought that look worked okay. Mainly it was just like Tatum and Brown absolutely carrying them at the offensive end and Smart doing a lot of heavy lifting on defense like 
<laughs> their core three is just really, really strong, even with Kemba out. And from the Bucks side of things, look, I, I'm not at all worried about their starters. Like their starters looked great in this game. I thought Holiday looked, you know, exactly like kind of what I expected. Middleton was awesome. Like DiVincenzo, I thought looked great. So I have no concerns about their starters, but their bench is really bad. And Bobby Portis, he just, I, I know I kind of talked when they signed him, like I didn't love the signing, but I was like, you know, look, they have a track record of getting the most out of players at the defensive end of the floor. You know, they turned Brooke Lopez into an all defensive caliber player and, and whatever. It's been one game. Maybe he'll improve at that end of the floor. I would expect him to improve, but in this one, it just wasn't there. Like he, he is so upright. He doesn't move well. He doesn't make an impact around the rim. I would not expect him to improve. <laughs> Bobby Portis? No, this is what he is, man. He's trash defensively. I know, but like, whatever. A full season in that system, I think they'll be able to get more out of him than they got out of him in game one, I think. But I just think their bench is going to be such a disaster this season. It seems like DJ Wilson is going to be a much more prominent part of their rotation than he's been the last couple of years. So he's the one guy off that bench that I would think maybe has like the upside to actually, you know, crack the playoff rotation. But it's dire, man. And I think if there's a silver lining, it's that maybe, maybe this will finally force Bud to play his starters 40 plus minutes in the playoffs. Because if he doesn't, then they might be cooked. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, uh, and, and I would say, like, I think the Bucks were maybe making more of an effort to, like, run off of misses playing more up-tempo. But honestly, apart from that, I, their scheme looked more or less unchanged at both ends of the floor. And again, I do think Holiday is going to help their half-court offense a lot, but I didn't get the sense that they are going to be like any more adaptable on either side of the ball than they've been in the past. All right, let's, uh, let's go back out west to a surprising result, not just in the fact that Utah beat Portland, but in the fact that they shellacked them. This game was over very early. Uh, it was basically a 20-point game by the second quarter. Utah ends up winning by 20. My one takeaway here, because sometimes there's not much to glean from blowouts and games that are over in the first or second quarter, is just that, and not that I forgot how good Utah can be, because I didn't. Like, you know, I think they're in that mix of teams that can finish, you know, maybe as high as third, but probably in that like four to seven range in the West where there's like a, an outside shot. They could be conference finalists. They could lose in the play and I don't know. But I, I think opening night was a good reminder that, you know, after all of the drama and chaos with the Gobert stuff and COVID last year. And, you know, after all of the reported tension between Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, and after they blew the 3-1 lead to Denver and with Bogdanovich not playing in the bubble, I just think there was a lot of noise around this team and in the way a lot of people maybe talked about this team, myself included, where you almost forget how much talent is still on that team and how good they can be on both sides of the ball. And, um, you know, again, everything we're saying here in this episode, it's one game, it's one game, but this was a pretty damn impressive one game. You know, Bogdanovich back in the lineup, they looked a lot better and a lot more balanced on the offensive end. And he didn't even look that good. He was like five of 14 from the field, but it just kind of, he completes them. Shout out Jerry Maguire. And, and yeah, you know, Mitchell and Gobert are both locked up long-term now. So any... Any speculation about their relationship and the chemistry there, honestly, it doesn't matter at this point because 
if it was that bad, I don't think both guys would have re-up to play together for the next like half decade, essentially. So I just think it's a good team with a lot of distractions out of the way. And opening night should serve as a reminder for people that maybe wrote them off already or doubted them that this team is, you know, barring major injury, going to be a factor in that Western Conference race. And like they have maybe the ceiling isn't quite what a couple of the other teams are, but like this team is good enough, man, to whether it's beat a Denver who they were up three, one on without Bogdanovich or to beat a Portland or a Phoenix or Dallas, you name it like this, this team is good enough to do it. And um, yeah, I, I hope anyone that wrote them off too early because of a lot of the crap that went on last year, were reminded on opening night that this team can still be pretty damn good. Well, as you know, I am not one of those people. I think I acknowledge like the talent on this team and acknowledge the fact that getting favors back was really going to help their second units, which was like a big part of why they struggled last season because their starters were consistently good. And in this game, again, their starters were great and their bench didn't let them down. Uh, just having Ingles, Clarkson and favors coming off the bench, uh, I think is really going to help stabilize their transitional lineups. So yeah, I expect them to be good. But did, did you have any thoughts from the Portland side of things? Because they had a couple really bad losses in the preseason and now to get shellacked like this on opening night, there's got to be like a little bit of creeping concern there as early as it still is. I mean, defensively, they looked very similar to what they did in the preseason, which was a disaster. They looked lost and Covington was really bad uh, again from the jump. Like this game was over very early, but yeah, Covington, he didn't hit a shot. He didn't seem to have the usual like defensive verve he does. Mello took some ill-advised shots. Nurkic, you know, if you remember in the bubble, he looked like he was really getting his legs back and it was pretty encouraging to watch and he wasn't moving all that well in this game. And I, I don't know, you know, again, I don't want to read too much into it. Maybe, maybe he just wasn't feeling great on this particular day, but it was a little concerning, I'd say, because he wasn't moving as well as he was even just a couple months ago. I mean, some of this is just one of those like shit happens games too. I think Dame hit his first, made his first field goal in like the third quarter. He had an awful shooting night. So some of this, obviously you can't really take too much away from, but given how bad their defense looked in the preseason and how out of sorts it looked, you know, against a West rival on opening night and just some of the other things that were going on, like I mentioned that let's say the level of concern has creeped up a bit, even after one game. Um, yeah, I actually didn't think like Nurkic was better than I expected when he came back in the bubble. But I even said at the time, like I, defensively, like defending in space, he didn't look great. Like I, I didn't think he was moving all that well then. And I think that's probably to be expected given how big he is and, and the lower body injury that he's coming off of. So hopefully that'll come with time. But uh, I do think, you know, especially on the defense, like I'm not worried at all about their offense. That'll come around. But on the defensive side of things, I, I do think it's fair to be a little bit worried at this point. Um, Grizzlies, Spurs, John Morant, man, that guy is unreal. 44 points, nine assists. Uh, he got those 44 with only two three-point attempts. He was 17 for 25 from two-point range. His bag is so deep. He's an incredible finisher. His floater might be the best in the league. He can shoot it off of either foot. He is unstoppable in transition. I just think... When you have a player with his level of explosiveness, but also his level of guile, creativity, and just overall Boys. feel for the game, that that is just a special, special player. And he was insanely good in this game. Uh, unfortunately, the rest of the Grizzlies weren't all that great, uh, and their bench in particular was quite bad. So the Spurs wound up winning pretty handily. 
but uh, Ja was still a plus 10 in his minutes and the Spurs could not do anything with him. Also, something terrible has happened to Brandon Clark's jump shot. Man, uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad sure you brought like, that up. Yeah, it's... Um, I don't know what happened or why it happened, but his mechanics I thought looked perfectly fine to me last season. And now they're a complete mess. I don't know what his legs are doing on that shot. He's like shooting the ball from his chest and the release is insanely slow. So I don't know if he's going to be any kind of a floor spacer this season. He shot 0 for 3 from deep in this game. And I don't know exactly why he decided to rework his jumper, but it does not look great. Brandon Clark has a reputation as like a pretty smart like high iq player i talked to him you know coming into the draft and it like there are some guys when you know they reinvent their shot and not that i want to say you kind of like it's not surprising because of the basketball iq or whatever but it's just it's not as surprising like i don't understand why brandon clark reworked his shot at all and i especially don't understand why someone with a reputation of having a pretty solid basketball iq for a youngster thought this reworking was right because the mechanics look way off even uh, like a casual basketball observer could have watched his jumper last night and been like what in god's name is that so yeah i don't know i don't know what's going on there but uh derosa looked great too man yeah i I was gonna say playmaking just continues to like impress the last couple years yeah but just one last thing on the brandon clark point i i i mean we've seen in the past when guys rework their shots and sometimes it's injury related like that's kind of the only thing that I can think of because I mean, he came into the league and shot like 40% from three last year, which I think is better than anybody expected him to like he, if anything overachieved as a shooter. So I don't know why that would lead anybody to go and completely rework their mechanics unless there was something physical that was giving him trouble. Um, But yeah, on the DeRozan point and just the Spurs in general, like I think they're going to be a lot of fun this year. And I think people might be sleeping on them a bit. I really like their young players. Um, I thought DeJounte looked great in this game. Lonnie Walker is incredibly fun. He had a couple massive dunks. Um, Keldon Johnson, Derek White's out with a toe injury right now, but you know how I feel about him. Isn't Derek White your most improved player pick? He is indeed. And I think, I guess we'll have to see like how he looks coming back from this injury and whether there'll be enough opportunity for him uh, to actually put up the numbers to win that award because they're kind of there are like a lot of really solid offensive players on this team and I, I like them playing a bit smaller and faster with DeRozan kind of almost being like a point power forward at this point and it's just every year everyone expects their offense to be you know mediocre to bad and every year they just finish top 10 anyway and I think DeRozan you know he gets a lot of flack and he's a highly imperfect player but this dude has been the leading scorer and highest usage player on a top 10 offense for seven straight years. So I think it's probably time we recognize just like what a proficient offensive player he is. I I don't think he gets enough credit for A, how efficient an inside the arc scorer he's become and B, how good a playmaker he's become. And you mentioned that, like he, he has point guard skill at this point, like the way that he can manipulate defenses, whether it's as a scorer, just with his footwork and his pump fakes that like continue to hoodwink defenders uh, or just his pick and roll passing, uh, how effective he is when he gets into the middle of the floor. Um, he was awesome in this game. DeRozan was incredibly efficient last season. And, you know, he's mostly been efficient most of his career, even though he can't really shoot, uh, can't shoot from the outside. So, yeah, like I, one of the quiet storylines of last season was the offensive year DeRozan had because the Spurs weren't very good. And, you know, everyone, 
knows about his deficiencies on the defensive end and his shooting woes. But like he is a very, very good offensive player. Yeah. And again, like a lot of people probably wouldn't guess this, but the Spurs finished ninth in offensive efficiency last year and they put up 131 points in this one. And so I think if their defense can improve from where it's been the last couple of years, which has been like bottom five in the league, then, you know, they, they can make the playoffs potentially, or at least make the play in like it's, and that's a big if with DeRozan and Aldridge at the heart of the roster, but there, there should still be enough defensive talent around those guys, right? Because White's a high-level defender. DeJounte Murray is a very high-level defender. Jakob Pertl is a high-level defender. I do think it's tough to scheme around two minus defenders who are playing you know, a huge chunk of minutes, but I, I just think that it should be possible for them to at least be in like the top 20. And at that point, I think you know if their offense can continue to be as good as it's been the last couple of years, then yeah, they're right there in that play-in mix. Quick note on Magic Heat, which I watched, which ended up with one of the more surprising results of the night in Orlando winning in Miami. My one takeaway from that was just that Duncan Robinson and Tyler, more so Tyler Hero, but the two of them, you know, it's so much of going into the bubble and going into the playoffs, I should say, was about whether those guys could stay on the floor and do what they do offensively for the Heat or whether they'd be exposed defensively and, and you know, whether Eric Spolster could count on them to play minutes. And for the most part, they were able to overcome that in the playoffs. I don't think either was as much of a defensive disaster as we expected them to be in the playoffs. And they both at various times gave Miami what they needed offensively to the point where they negated it. The one takeaway for me from opening night of this season is that both those guys, and like I said, Hero especially, were like major defensive weaknesses for this team they both started and they were both abused for the majority of the night hero especially and again you know maybe we should remember that they were able to overcome that just a couple months ago in the playoffs and got all the way to the finals and won two games in the finals but if you expect them to come even close to replicating their success from last season they're going to need both those guys to you know to take on pretty sizable roles for that team and if if they're just complete black holes defensively it's going to be a problem and they were both black holes defensively on opening night it's a big reason why orlando shocked them so you're saying it's time once again for me to doubt the heat i can't wait i can't wait um yeah i mean definitely a surprising result and for the magic to hang 113 points on them I mean, do you have any thoughts on like their offense? Because that was definitely something I was concerned about for Orlando coming into the season. But it uh, seemed like Gordon had a good game. Yeah, Gordon had a great game. Fultz, you know, Fultz was himself, kind of like showed some bounce. Fournier had a great game and hit some really big shots for them down the stretch. Yeah, he ended up 9 of 13. He ended up with 25 points on 9 of 13. And he, there were a lot of moments in the game where it seemed like the Heat you know, he would catch up or maybe go up one and be like, all right, they're going to pull away now. This is just what happens. It's the NBA. And then Fournier would hit like a big shot or the clock would be winding down and he'd kind of save the a really bad magic possession. And it's like, oh, the magic are still in this. They're still up. And it's kind of what kept happening throughout the night. And yeah, by the end of the night, uh, I didn't even realize he was this good. I watched the game and knew he had a good game, but I didn't realize he was nine of 13 good. So yeah, Fournier... Fournier being the best player on the court in a Magic Heat season opener is not what I expected, um, nor was how bad Hero and Robinson were on the defensive end. Another crazy finish uh, happened in Kings Nuggets. 
we might go the whole season and not have that finish topped. Basically, it started with Michael Porter Jr. with what seemed to be a game-saving block on a Corey Joseph three-pointer from the corner with the Nuggets up two and about 25 seconds left in overtime. The Nuggets end up getting the ball out of bounds. Like the, the Kings had fouled, and so the Nuggets are inbounding with a two-point lead. Basically, the ball goes to Will Barton, who appears to have like a wide-open layup or dunk. And instead of dribbling the ball out, he decides to just like go up for the dunk. And it's like very similar to what Torrey Craig decided to do when they had that two-point lead on Utah in Game 7 last year when he wound up missing that layup when he could have just dribbled the ball out and kept running the clock and gone to the free throw line. And instead it led to like the Jazz getting a shot to win the series. This time, De'Aaron Fox makes like an incredible block and the Kings get the ball back. Harrison Barnes, who was ridiculously good in this game, goes the length of the floor for a game-tying layup. Okay, Nuggets take a timeout. They advance the ball, get it back again at half court with a chance to win, or at the very worst, you think, go to double overtime. Harrison Barnes strips Jokic on the inbounds and winds up going the other way. Barton, who had blown the layup at the other end, comes back with like an incredible defensive effort and blocks him at the rim. But then what could have been the game when he got a thunderous dunk? Yeah. Uh, but then Buddy Heald, following the play, gets the follow-up tip in just before the buzzer, and the Kings win the opener. You know, frankly, the Nuggets didn't play very well. I thought Jokic was unbelievable. Like, the guy is just unguardable at this point. But the rest of the team didn't exactly show up. Murray was awful. Uh, he didn't hit his first field goal until, like, midway through the fourth quarter and then wound up fouling out with nine points on one of seven shooting. Um, just not a great start for the Nuggets, but we've seen them start slow in the past. I wouldn't be too concerned. Murray especially um, always gets off to slow starts this season. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't be too worried, but great for the Kings winning their opening game. I thought De'Aaron Fox looked awesome, especially in the second half. He was just smoking the Nuggets at the point of attack. Like they did not have anybody who could stay in front of him. And I thought it was a good reminder too that like, look, Buddy Heald, everyone's like, dumped on his contract. Everyone seems to want to throw him into all these trade proposals. Buddy Hill is still like a pretty damn good player. And I think especially in uh, transition, he, he's just like such a good stop and pop shooter. And I did think the Kings upped the pace again a little bit after playing weirdly slow last year. So that was good to see. And like, I, I don't know if they're going to actually be good this season, but... I would very much like to see it because Fox is like quickly becoming one of my absolute favorite players in the league to watch. Uh, my last game of the night that I will talk about is nowhere near as interesting as Nuggets Kings. And I'll try to get through it quickly. Cavs beat the Hornets pretty handily. Uh, the Cavs take away Sexton and uh, Garland looked good. I thought Larry Nance might've been the best player on the floor in this game. Um, so, you know, good win for the Cavs without Kevin Love if you think the Cavs have a chance to do anything this season but the main takeaway for me is just the Hornets are bad man and then I'm lower on a bad Hornets team than even most people already are and then they lose Zeller uh, Cody Zeller breaks his hand fractures his hand so we don't know how long he's going to be out but we can assume it's going to be for at least a bit of time and the Hornets are now left with a roster in which the only guys taller than six foot eight are Bismack Biombo and Jalen McDaniels um, I think Bismack Biombo is six foot eight. So I don't even so know if you can say that he's taller. Six foot eight or taller. Um, <laughs> they do not have size. They do not have enough talent. Like Hayward and Rozier were were really good on opening night, but 
you know, this goes back to what I was saying when they made that ridiculous offer to Hayward and, you know, they friggin' stretched Batum to do it. Like, Gordon Hayward's solid. He's good, but he's not, he shouldn't be your best player. And there's no reason for a team that's not going to compete for anything anyway in a year when you're not trying to put butts in the seats anyway that they needed to go get a guy that's going to what? Like, raise their floor from maybe having a chance to draft Cade Cunningham to like being like the seventh worst team in the league. And then I watched opening night and I was like, you know what? They gave Gordon Hayward his money and they might still be one of like the worst team in the league. I think it's possible. They're bad, man. They have no size whatsoever with Zeller out. They had barely any size with Zeller in there. And uh, yeah, they're going to be throttled a lot of nights. And if you have a talented big man and a big man that can, or, or even just a team that can get into the paint, the Hornets are going to roll out the red carpet for you. They've got no deterrence at the rim whatsoever, no size. It's going to be a long season for Charlotte. Yeah, I mean, I think we're probably going to see a lot of P.J. Washington at the five for them because outside of Biombo, they basically they don't have any centers whatsoever. So that'll at least be interesting. Uh, did you mention Terry Rozier and the 42 points that he dropped? I didn't mention the 42. I said him and Hayward were both really, really good. Um, but it was an empty calorie, 42 points. Like he didn't do much on the defensive end his team was out of it for the majority of the game congratulations terry rosier uh you might have a few of those nights this year on a 7 and 65 <laughs> wow they the, the last time we had an abbreviated season you might recall the hornets went 7 and 59 it's the worst winning percentage in any season in nba history and then they so, didn't win the lottery that would have netted them anthony davis that's right they ended up with mkg Oof. Yikes. Tough run for that franchise, man. Um, Suns, Mavs, to be honest, I thought both teams for a lot of the game just like looked pretty sloppy and like a bunch of the players in that game looked out of shape to me, including Luca and DeAndre Ayton. Also, though, I just want to throw out before you continue, why did Luca look like six minutes into the game? He looked as if his team was down 20 in like game seven of the final. He looked so frustrated and rattled so early and I'm sure you'll get into this and maybe what Bridges had to do with that but still like it just seemed like way too early in a game and obviously way too early in a season for Luca to look as discouraged as he did I mean that's pretty much exactly what Jokic looked like at the beginning of last season right like he looked miserable dragging himself up and down the court like he just looked like he wanted to be anywhere else and I think it was you who said to me one time like European players really treat the offseason like the offseason and they kind of indulge and, you know, kind of play their way into shape over the course of the season. We've certainly seen Jokic do that in the past. And I actually thought if we're looking for like encouraging signs from Denver in spite of the loss, it's the fact that he actually looked like quite fit and didn't see much of a drop off as that game went on. So as far as Luca's concerned, yeah, I do think Bridges had a lot to do with it. He bothered him a lot with his length and his footwork. I thought Bridges in general was just incredible in this game. Um, probably the second best player on the Suns, to be honest, because until the very end of the game, I thought Chris Paul looked pretty bad. But big picture, man, I, I just think Devin Booker is so fun to watch. And like, I think so much of it is pacing. Like the game has slowed down for him so much. With the ball in his hands, it's really hard to prevent him from getting to where he wants to go. He's so under control. And he's, he's really under control when he leaves his feet as well. Like there were a couple plays in this game where like he got to where he wanted to go and then just like was able to hang in the air for like a half second longer than you'd expect and put the ball in. Uh, his footwork is incredible, his balance. And um, 
you know, another important thing, and like we've mentioned this a lot, right? And and about how him and Chris Paul are going to work together and how it worked with Rubio last year. He just continues to be such an exceptional off-ball player. And he got a few buckets in this game just by like being really active as a cutter. And it was just cool to see, you know, we another thing that we've talked about, right? Like the Suns lost a bunch of close games last year. And we talked about how having Chris Paul out there with their closing groups was really going to help them in that regard. And so it was, it was pretty cool to see him and Booker back to back, just get to like that right elbow and essentially ice the game with back to back mid range jumpers. And the Devin Booker shot to ice it was him and Chris Paul, like running a small, small pick and roll. They got Jalen Brunson switched on to Booker and he gets to the elbow and rises up as if Brunson's not even there. Yeah, I mean, we talked about, you know, uh, how having Chris Paul means you win close games. And in a Western Conference standing that's going to be very compact and the the margins between like third and seventh are going to be negligible, those add up over the course of the year. You know, I've mentioned there's a reason why nine years in a row now, Chris Paul's teams have won at least 60% of their games. Um, and, and just in general... Him and Booker is a match made in guard pairing heaven because of their collective uh, playmaking ability, shooting ability, both able to thrive off the ball comfortably. Um, and one of the two, you know, in Paul is still one of the better perimeter defenders in the NBA. So just it, it is really hard, honestly, to come up with a guard pairing that fits as seamlessly together as these two guys do. So, yeah, this team's going to be super fun, man. Bridges looked great. Yeah, he was awesome, man. And one thing, man, with with Aiton, like, we've talked a lot about the jump that he can make this season. Still a lot of work to do. For one thing, offensively, someone just needs to, like, shake him by the shoulders and tell him how gigantic he is. Because far too often, he gets the ball with, like, very deep post position and still resorts to, like, these turnaround fadeaways. And then... His help defense, I think, still has a long way to go as well. Like, there's a play toward the end of that game where I can't remember who was guarding Luca. It might have been Bridges, but Luca basically beat him off of the dribble. And DeAndre Ayton was right by the basket. Like, he was guarding, uh, I think, Maxi Kleba on the right block and had plenty of time to react to Luca's drive and did not move, just allowed Luca to waltz in for an uncontested dunk. And he just needs to be a little bit more aware than that. Uh, as a help guy. DeAndre Ayton was very annoyed with me last year because I asked him, I was trying to ask, well, actually I've had two pretty bad interactions with Ayton and it doesn't at all like change the way I think of it. Like I I think he's a really good young player and I think all indications that he's a good guy too. I'm not going to be one of those media people that um, judges a guy based on his interactions with me. But the reason I brought it up is because I think it's funny because the the thing he was annoyed with me last year is I was uh, at the time trying to work on a story about how realistic it is um, and why I think the NBA should do away with the center position on all NBA teams, just like they do with the all-star. And it doesn't mean that you can't have a center on an all NBA team. Hell, it could mean that you could have two on one technically if they're good enough one year. I just think they should go guard like backcourt, frontcourt. Anyway, I wanted to ask Aiton about it. And he was obviously as a center, not very happy about it. And he went on this rant about how like, you know, centers like him, you still got to stop him. And like, no one could stop him down low. And, that's why center should be on there because a guy like him just can't be stopped. And I think about that interaction every time I see him get a guy on the block 
that he should be able to dominate that he himself says no one can like you know what i mean he's unstoppable down there and then he resorts to like a seven foot fadeaway like dude what are you doing i kind of agree with you in that not a lot of people can stop you but like go show it you know yeah just in general i think he needs to play with a lot more force so there you have it uh we have covered off every single game that has been played in the nba so far do we have a fan shout out for this week yeah, we do. Uh, fan shout out for this week. On Twitter, he goes by the handle at Beyond Bonesaw. Real name is Atik, and he's listening from Toronto. And anyone uh, who's on, maybe not NBA Twitter, but definitely Raptors Twitter, will know Atik as the absolute anchor and torchbearer for the JV Hive. And if you know, you know. But uh, yeah. Thanks as, for the as as a recent convert to the cult of JV, I can say it took a while, but I got there and Atik, we appreciate you, your loyal listenership, your continued adherence to not just JV, but I think to the big man in general. Yeah, Andre uh, Ayton would love you, Atik. <laughs> he's always out there riding for the big men. He, we, we recently had a bit of a, a back and forth with him about who was better between Nikola Jokic and Kawhi Leonard, and I think you can guess which guy Atik chose in that argument. Uh, and that's maybe something we can revisit as the season goes along. But for now, I think we're going to put a bow on this one. Cash, Merry Christmas to you. Thanks, Enjoy man. the holidays. Happy holidays and to you and yours. I think that might be it, honestly, for, for us for 2020. Yeah, I mean, we'll see if you know if like a Harden trade goes down or something happens next week that we uh, we absolutely need to get together and uh and pod for we will definitely do that and take care of our listeners but if not yeah we're probably looking at uh, early 2021 for our next pod yeah so uh good chance that that's the last you'll hear from us this year if it is happy new year to everybody we'll talk to you in 2021 and hope you enjoy 90 minutes on just about every team in the league tied you over in the meantime so for joseph Cacharo, i'm joe wolf on pound the rock 